Uranus is crooked. No, it's really crooked. Now it's insulting Bahasa Malaysia. That's the latest stupidity. And how the Great Pyramids were built. We got that more tonight. It's the Jay Sheldon Show. I'm Jay Sheldon. Hello there. Welcome in. We're live across Facebook, YouTube, Twitch.tv, and Rumble.com. We are live across the planet. And we're also a podcast, thanks to our podcast listeners who check out the audio-only part of our show that goes up about half an hour after we're done with the live show. You can also find all of our past episodes on Facebook and YouTube and Rumble.com. I really recommend Rumble.com because it's censorship-free. There's no issues over there. Speaking of which, you idiots at Facebook... I play some music in our pre-roll where it says starting, you know, just to get everything set up and running. And uh, I have a contract with a wonderful, amazing uh, company called Streambeats who have given me the license and the rights to use the music. Every single one of my shows has the music in the beginning muted on Facebook only. Because the idiots or the AI algorithms identify it as copyrighted material and mute the music in the beginning of the show. Sorry about that. I have written to them and argued. I've sent them a copy of my contract. They just want to ignore me. So they continue or the bots automatically continue to mute the music in the beginning. It's not that big of a deal. It just pisses me off. It's just annoying. Zah! Oh my goodness, look who's here. Zahira! Hey, I have... Oh man. Uh, Zah is one of my old producers and she is the dearest, dearest lady. She is an amazing friend. I have not seen her in... How long has it been, Zah? Uh, probably... 10 years, maybe more. I do see your posts on Facebook. Your family looks amazing. Your kids are all growing up. My goodness, I can't believe how old they're getting. Anyway, a little old home week here on the Jay Sheldon Show. Zog, great to see you. Uh, <laughs> we go back to uh, production, television production a long time ago, and uh, <clears throat> I miss you very much. It's good to hear, good to hear from you. All right. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay, let us get updated on our favorite little furry lady. Miko update. Mm-mm. Miko update. You caught me in the middle of my coffee break. Sorry. I always sneak a sip of coffee uh, when the intro is running to Miko update. Today it took too long. Anyway, <laughs> I miss you too. All right, Za. Oh, man. Great to see you. Uh, anyway, Miko's doing great. Uh, she is still having her shedding thing. I mean, Shiba Inu's shed, that's what they do. Some people make a joke that there's two shedding seasons, from January to June and then July to December. Normally, she sheds for three or four weeks, and then it, 
it's over. It's horrible when it happens, but it happens. It's what the breed does. They shed. This time around, though, we've just been noticing that she's actually got some spots where she's obviously missing hair, and I'm getting a little concerned about it. So <clears throat> I'm thinking maybe a trip to the vet, check for allergies, things like that, because uh, mm, I don't know. It just seems like it's been going on much longer than it normally does, and uh, so I really want to get that checked out, make sure she's okay. But in general, she's doing great. Thank you for asking, and uh, yeah, that's our Miko update for uh, for tonight. It's Wednesday. We're halfway through the week, unbelievably so, and uh, we got a lot coming up tonight, uh, including our headline, yes, indeed, Uranus is crooked. Yes, I know, it's funny, and you know, tee-hee-ha-ha, but uh, this is a rather cool article. Everything we talk about, by the way, on our show, you will find the links to that in our show notes, which is the description down below. You just expand that if you want. By the way, while you're fumbling around down there, you'll see a subscribe or a follow button. If you would just hit that for me, it's free. No obligation. You don't give us any information. We don't give you any info. It's just a follow button or a subscribe. And... If you could do that, it would really help the show out a lot. We really appreciate it. So if, if you enjoy what we do here, please give us a follow or a subscribe, and we really do appreciate it. All right, so six solar system oddities and what we have to learn about them and from them. And it's weird. This is a cool article from Big Think. You want some crazy space phenomena? Well, you don't have to go too far out of your own neighborhood to get it. Uh, the universe has a lot of weird stuff in it. We find more and more every day. You know, the James Webb uh, telescope is about to s give us its first image, which is supposedly going to be absolutely remarkable. I cannot wait to see it. I'm a big nerd when it comes to space stuff. Well, our own solar system is filled with weirdness, strangeness. Some we can't figure out. Learning about these things isn't just fun. It can also be applied to our lives and can alter our perspectives. It's been said the universe is not only stranger than we imagine, but that it's stranger than we can imagine. Uh, John Haldane was the originator, uh, originator of that quote. And um, since he's passed, we've discovered things like pulsars, comic background radiation, even more out there, scientists have postulated the existence of bizarre stuff like dark matter and dark energy, and uh, the aptly named strange matter. Bet you haven't heard of that one before. I mean, everybody knows about dark matter, but something called strange matter. Anyway, uh, in a previous episode, they talked about Saturn's storms. They're hexagonal storms. Today, the six strangest things in the cosmic backyard and why spend time investigating, investigating them isn't wasted. The smallest planet in the solar system constantly outdoes itself. Mercury is shrinking, strangely enough. Unlike many items, the strange occurrence likely caused by a fairly mundane mechanism. The planet, which is primarily of metal, hence the name Mercury, uh, has a high iron content. And scientists think the planet is shrinking as it continues to cool down from the internal temperatures when it had formed. Very weird. Uh, as seen from Earth, 
the sun comes up in the east, of course, and sets in the west. On Venus, the opposite is true. I didn't know that. That is unique among planets in, the solar, in our solar system. Even stranger, it would take 243 Earth days to be able to enjoy another sunrise, if you could see it from the surface of Venus. The planet rotates at 6.52 kilometers an hour? How slow is that? Really? The Earth rotates, to compare it, the Earth rotates at 674.4 kilometers an hour. That's incredibly slow. So a Venusian year is 225 Earth days, meaning a year there is shorter than a day. Wow. Crazy stuff. This has all kinds of cool information in it about all the, all of the planets and the weird things that happen in our solar system. And uh, here's the one in our headline. If you remember anything from grade school astronomy about Uranus, it's probably that it rolls along its side like a ball while other planets spin like tops. Most planets spin this way. Uranus spins this way. Don't go there. I'm telling you. Stop it. Its poles spend each uh, spend the solstice in either full sunlight or total darkness. Only during the equinox, when the poles are oriented perpendicular to the sun, the entire planet has a day and a night cycle, which is similar to other planets. Why? We don't know. The current leading theory involves what seems to be the favorite explanation of astronomers, a large object knocking into the planet in the early days of the solar system. As you might expect, this orientation means that Uranus's poles get more sunlight and heat than the equator does. Despite this, the equator is still warmer than the poles are. And why that happens? Nobody knows. But there is a picture of Uranus in case you needed to be reminded. <laughs> just don't, okay? Just don't. Uh, this article is so cool. All the information, I didn't get to even half of it, but check it out. It's the top link in our show notes tonight, which is our description down below. It's it's very, very cool. Um, yeah, neat. Um, got another one for you. Chess and drug dealers. What do you suppose they have in common? Chess and drug dealers. I know. Not much, right? Well, you'd be wrong. Theory of mind. This is a cool link I found from a site called freethink.com. Lord knows I love the idea of free thinkers. Uh, what chess and drug dealers can teach you about manipulation. Grandmasters of chess and drug dealers have something in common. They are many steps ahead of their rivals. The greatest tacticians of the world are those who think ahead. What's next and then what is a question really ought to be asked a lot more often than it is these days. But um, chess masters, famous generals, great world leaders, and mafia dons all share one skill. They are all many more steps ahead than their rivals. 
we each have the ability to think ahead, think about, okay, if this happens, then what? If I do this, what's the reaction going to be? It's hard to imagine a functioning human who didn't think ahead at least sometime, although the way some people are acting these days, you have to believe they don't think much past the end of their nose, frankly. You've probably planned what are you going to do tonight. You likely know the route you're going to take to get home from work or get to work in the morning. Thinking ahead is one of the hallmarks of intelligence. Without it, we're simply slaves to instinct and reflexes, a bit like a plant or a baby. What about the role of forward thinking when dealing with other people? It's something addressed in a recent study out of the Mount Sinai School of Medicine shows just how far ahead we think when we interact with and manipulate other people. A theory of mind is what it's called. The ability most of us have to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. To varying degrees, people with autism may not have that ability. Theory of mind is something that we learn as we grow up. Children will learn other people's uh, behaviors, their own desires, emotions, and so on. Around 15 months old is where babies begin to sense that. But they're still bad at compensating and adapting for a while. For instance, if a two-year-old sees another person in distress, they will seek help by giving them their own toy or their favorite thing. They realize this person needs help, but they can't comprehend how to help. So they do what they think is right, which you might see a, a two-year-old give someone in, in trouble their toy as a way of trying to help. It's instinctual. They recognize someone has their own feelings, but they can't step beyond that to think what the other person might want. Fascinating study. And uh, most people have hugely sophisticated theories of mind. Uh, let's say you and I are talking about something and you see me look up at the clock. What assumption would you make? Am I boring you? Are you late for a meeting? Is there a spider on the clock? <laughs> uh, some people who overthink things often get lost and trapped in the elaborate game of speculative theory of mind. A useful brain habit becomes toxic when it's taken too far. The study goes on. They talk about ways in which we manipulate people, ways in which, like I said in the beginning, chess players who have to think several steps ahead, many steps ahead when they play the game, and drug dealers who need to know what other people are going to do and how other people are going to react, share a lot in common. It's not just a clickbait headline. Read the article. It's very cool. It's in our show notes tonight, our description down below. Serena Lee has joined the stream. Hello, Serena. Good to see you. Thanks for making us chuckle this week once again. We appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it's um, uh, cool. Uh, all right, we've, we've got that. So uh, anyway, I promised you that we would, uh, would chit-chat about people's strange ideas when it comes to uh, to the theory of manipulating people speaking of manipulating people oh i got one for you hold on a second i'm just kind of doing this backwards tonight so give me a give me give me a break eh? 
From the Malay Mail, and I don't you like to use a lot of Malay Mail stuff because they do a lot of clickbaity crap. But anyway, it's here. This is a headline. Oh, man. Do you remember the show I did about insulting religion and how it is not technically possible to insult religion because religion doesn't have a feeling? You can insult people because people have feelings. You, and I've said this a million times, I'll say it again, you cannot insult inanimate objects because they don't have feelings. Well, here we go again. Just to show those of you who aren't in Malaysia that you're not the only ones who have really dumb people in politics. We have them too. In fact, I'd say we almost have more than our fair share. Those who disrespect Bahasa Melayu may face legal action. Bahasa Melayu, if you don't know, is the language of Malaysia. Bahasa means language. Um, Anyway, the DBP board chairman, uh, individuals who don't respect the national language can be fined up to 50,000 ringgit which is about a dollar 248 in USD uh, or sentenced to imp- you can be imprisoned through amendments to the Dewan Bahasa Dan uh, Pustaka I hope I said that right otherwise I might be insulting the language uh, two punishments were fine uh, the proposed fine not to punish but to evoke love and patriotism to the country let me tell you, there's a whole lot of other things you could do besides that that would do a lot more to promote love and patriotism to the country. Uh, So I need to stop yelling at my table then? (laughs) Yeah, you might be right. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, this is not about grammar or spelling errors, but disrespect for the national language. The proposed fine is not to punish, blah, 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 blah. You know what? I'm not even going to keep reading because this is such bullcrap. It's like, give me a break. A, you can't insult a language because a language doesn't have feelings. It's not a person. Same rule applies like religion. You can't insult something that doesn't have feelings. Secondly, how would you insult the national language? Hello, language. You're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. Yeah, I don't think that's going to do it. Besides, I checked with the language, and the language says it doesn't have any feelings, so it's not insulted, just so you know. And on and on it goes. Why did we just get into this rather bad lag? I have no idea, but for some reason I'm lagged out right now, so just bear with me and we'll get through it. Uh, How were the pyramids built? We got that one? Yes, we do. There has been a, papy- a papyrus discovered. I'm sorry, my headphones are being all freaky now because I'm lagged really badly. A papyrus has been discovered that reveals how the Great Pyramids were built. No kidding. A newly discovered papyrus contains an eyewitness account of the gathering of materials to build the Great Pyramid never before found or seen. Uh, One of the last ancient seven wonders of the world, the tomb for Pharaoh Khufu, Cheops in Greek, sits on the Giza Plateau, three kilometers southwest of Egypt's capital, Cairo. It is huge, if you had no idea exactly or you've never seen it. Uh, 
It's 147 meters high, 230.4 meters on each side, slightly smaller now because of erosion, built of roughly 2.3 million limestone and rose granite stones that came from hundreds of kilometers away. Uh, there have been all kinds of theories. The aliens built it. They, you know, there's been all kinds of theories about how these stones got to Giza. Um, how did they build this incredible object? Well, uh, in one of the managers, apparently, who helped to build the Great Pyramid, they found a journal. The only eyewitness account of building the Great Pyramid that has ever been found, written by a man named Murrer, M-E-R-E-R, -E reported to the noble Ankh Hof, Khufu's half-brother. It describes, among other things, a stop of his 200-man crew in the Tura, or Maasara, limestone quarries on the eastern shore of the Gulf of Suez, filling up their boats for the 13 to 17 kilometer trip back up the river to Giza. And since this type of limestone was used for the pyramid's outer casing, the journal is believed to be documenting work on the tomb during the final years of Khufu's life around 2560 BCE. Incredible. There's all kinds of details about this papyrus that's been found. It's fascinating. You've got to check this article out. It's in our show notes. It's from bigthink.com. Uh, big and uh, it's well worth your time. Short, short read. Won't take you long. It's not one of those too long, didn't read articles. Um, but do check it out because it's absolutely amazing. And the fact that they have, uh, it ended, I knew something was going to happen. Weird. All right, hang on. Let me just check. Uh, the YouTube is still up. That's fine. And rumble.com is still going on. Uh, what happened if on Facebook? I don't know. I can't really monitor that. So we'll just keep going. And uh, yeah, no, uh, I'm still here, uh, Serena. So if you're able to watch either on rumble.com, you can check me out over there. Just search Jay Sheldon. You'll see our live stream. And also uh, Jay in Malaysia on uh, YouTube. I think the links are in our show notes down below. You can check that out. I don't know what happened. Apparently that what, what was what happened when suddenly my earphones went crazy. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's strange. All right. Strangely enough, I can't deal with this technical crap right now. So <laughs> we won't. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Just got a couple more to go here. And uh, hang with me, because I'm still trying to figure out exactly what we're doing. And here we go, I hope. <laughs> I don't know. What do I know? Hey, I got a cool one for you. Check this out. You see this plant? Take a look at this thing. This is the strangest thing. Have you seen Now, no, chances are, if you live in a place with four seasons, you've seen this. Uh, I had no idea what it was called. It is called broadleaf or broadleaf plantain and when i was growing up in cornwall connecticut we had this thing growing all over our yard i mean not covering the yard but there were four five six of them that would pop up and spring up 
Don't ask me why. But I tried eating this once. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was a kid. It was delicious. Not only that. Let me uh, hang on. Let me get my mouse back here. There we go. You see the leaves here, which have this. It's kind of like a cabbage flavor. It's quite good. But also these stems, these pods here, which have the seeds, are also edible. I never knew what this thing is, and somebody posted this. It's called the broadleaf plantain. It grows especially well in poor rocky soil like driveways and often seen alongside dandelions. Uh, more often than not, you'll see plantain growing in gravel pits and construction sites as uh, nature seeks to regenerate the soil. It was introduced, this is cool, introduced it to North America in the 1600s. Once called white man's foot. Oh. Uh, the Native Americans would call it white man's foot, who witnessed that wherever the Europeans tread and disrupted the soil, the plantain would spring up. Plantain often been the go-to remedy for hikers plagued by mosquitoes because it draws toxins from the body. Look, I'm not recommending you eat this. I'm not your doctor. But I ate it as a kid, and I loved it. <laughs> anyway, uh, it can be crushed or chewed and placed as a poultice directly over the site of bee stings, bug bites, uh, acne, slivers, glass splinters, or rashes. You bandage the area and allow the plantain to work its magic for 4 to 12 hours. Cool. Anyway, it doesn't say much in here about whether it can be helpful for lung problems, cough, and colds. Uh, it's a gentle expectorant, high in silica, and very cool. Plantain. That's a picture. I don't think we have this in Malaysia. I don't think I've seen it anywhere. But we certainly had it growing up. And yes, indeed, it says here, add it to salads. Choose, uh, chew and ease thirst or stir and enjoy in fries. Oh, enjoy in a stir fry. I'm just talking about fries. <laughs> it's a versatile wild, wild vegetable that will keep you in good health for years to come. Plantain, or white man's foot, as the Indians would say. Very cool. Very, very weird. All right. Uh, again, if you're watching on Facebook and I'm still live, great. If not, you can always, always find our feed on YouTube and rumble.com. Check us out over there if we've uh, lost the feed. But I can see on Rumble and YouTube, the feed is still going on. So we're still good. No problem there. All right. One more story and then we're going to get to our book. And that would be be this we always end with a piece of good news something heartwarming and this in fact is from the heartwarming page on facebook i saw this story and it brought a tear today i saw a video that made me tear up an elderly veteran on hospice wanted to get a meal with his wife at a local pizza restaurant there he sat with his oxygen tubes, oxygen machine, and his cap that identified his branch of service in a long-past war. In the same restaurant, a middle school choir was also enjoying their lunch. Several of them saw him and began to sing 
the national anthem. The entire choir stood up, faced him, and they all joined in the singing. The old and broken-down warrior struggled to stand, placed his hand and cap over his heart, and wept as the choir sang. The humble and noble expression on his face said everything to me. There stands a true hero. Also, the actions of these kids tell me that even though some people say America is bruised, she for sure ain't broken. God bless us all. Wow. What an incredible story. Absolutely amazing. There is hope yet, my friends. Don't give up. Please don't give up. <laughs> All right. You ready for some book here? We're going to do uh, our Sherlock Holmes. We've been reading chapters at a time or parts of chapters as we go. And uh, we're starting a new one tonight. Uh, we're on chapter five. It's called The Five Orange Pips. And it goes like, whoops, it goes like this. <laughs> when I glance over my notes and records of Sherlock Holmes' cases between the years 82 and 90, I'm faced by so many which present strange and interesting features that it's not so easy a matter to know which to choose and which to leave. Some, however, have already gained publicity through the papers, and others have not offered a field for those peculiar qualities, which my friend possessed in such a high degree, and which it is the object of these papers to illustrate. Some, too, have baffled his analytical skill and would be, as narratives, beginnings without endings, while others have been but partially cleared up and have their explanations founded rather upon conjecture and surmise than on that absolute logical proof which is so dear to him. There is, however, one of these last which was so remarkable in its details and so startling in its results, I'm tempted to give some account of it in spite of the fact that there are points in connection with it which have never been and probably never will be, entirely cleared up. The year 87 furnished us with a long series of cases of greater or less interest, of which I retain the records. Among my headings under this one twelve months, I find an account of the adventure of the Paradol Chamber, one of the amateur mendicant society, who held a luxurious club in the lower vault of a furniture warehouse, of the facts connected with the loss of the British bark Sophie Anderson, of the singular adventures of the Grice Pattersons in the island of Ufa, and finally of the Chamberwell poisoning case. In the latter, as it might be remembered, Sherlock Holmes was able, by winding up the dead man's watch, to prove that it would have been wound up two hours before, and that therefore the deceased had gone to bed within that time, 
a deduction which was of the greatest importance in clearing up the case. All these I may sketch out at some future date, but none of them present such singular features as the strange train of coincidences which I have now taken up my pen to describe. It was in the latter days of September, and the equinoctial gales had set in with exceptional violence. All day the wind had screamed and the rain had beaten against the windows, so that even here in the heart of great land handmade London, we were forced to raise our minds for the instant from the routine of life and to recognize the presence of those great elemental forces which shriek at mankind through the bars of his civilization, like untamed beasts in a cage. As evening grew in, the storm grew higher and louder, and the wind cried and sobbed like a child in the chimney. Sherlock Holmes sat moodily at one side of the fireplace, cross-indexing his records of crime, while I at the other was deep in one of Clark Russell's fine sea stories, until the howl of the gale from without seemed to blend with the text and the splash of the rain to lengthen out into the long swash of the sea waves. My wife was on a visit to her mother's, and for a few days I was a dweller once more in my old quarters at Baker Street. Why, said I, glancing up at my companion, that was surely the bell. Who would come tonight? Some friend of yours, perhaps? Except yourself, I have none, he answered. I do not encourage visitors. A client, then? If so, it is a serious case. Nothing less would bring a man out on such a day and such an hour, but I take it that it is more likely to be some crony of the landlady's. Well, Sherlock Holmes was wrong in his conjecture, however, for there came a step in the passage and a tapping at the door. He stretched out his long arm to turn the lamp away from himself and toward the vacant chair upon which a newcomer must sit. Come in, he said. The man who entered was young, some two and twenty at the outside, well-groomed and trimly clad with something of refinement and delicacy in his bearing. The steaming umbrella which he held in his hand and his long, shining waterproof told of the fierce weather through which he'd come. We looked about him anxiously in the glare of the lamp, and I could see his face was pale and his eyes heavy, like those of a man who's weighed down with some great anxiety. I owe you an apology, he said, raising his golden pince-nez to his eyes. I trust that I'm not intruding. I fear that I've brought some traces of the storm and rain into your snug chamber. Uh, give me your coat and umbrella, said Holmes. They may rest here on the hook and will be dry presently. You've come up from the southwest, I see. Uh, yes, from Horsham. That clay and chalk mixture which I see on your toe caps is quite distinctive. I've come here for advice. That is easily got. And help. That is not always so easy. I've heard of you, Mr. Holmes. 
I heard from Major Pendergrass how you saved him in the Tankerville Club scandal. Of course, he was wrongly accused of cheating at cards. He said you could solve anything. He said too much. That you've never been beaten. I have been beaten four times. Three times by men and once by a woman. But what is that compared with the number of your successes? It is true I have been generally successful. Then you may be so with me. I beg that you will draw up your chair to the fire and favor me with some details as to your case. It's no ordinary one. None of those which come to me are. I am the last court of appeal. And yet I question, sir, whether in all your experience you have ever listened to a more mysterious and inexplicable chain of events than those which have happened to my own family. You fill me with interest, said Holmes. Pray, give us the essential facts from the commencement, and I can afterwards question you as to those details which seem to be most important. Well, the young man pulled his chair up, pushed his wet feet out towards the blaze. My name, said he, is John Openshaw. But my own affairs have, as far as I can understand it, little to do with this awful business. It is a hereditary matter, so in order to give you an idea of the facts, I must go back to the commencement of the affair. You must know that my grandfather had two sons, my uncle Elias and my father Joseph. My father had a small factory at Coventry, which he enlarged at the time of the invention of bicycling. He was the patentee of the Openshaw Unbreakable Tire, and his business met with such success that he was able to sell it and retire on a handsome competence. My uncle Elias emigrated to America when he was a young man, became a planter in Florida, where he was reported to have done very well. At the time of the war, he fought in Jackson's army, and afterward under Hood, where he rose to be a colonel. When Lee laid down his arms, my uncle returned to his plantation, where he remained for three or four years. About 1869 or 1870, he came back to Europe, took a small estate in Sussex, near Horsham. He'd made a very considerable fortune in the States, and his reason for leaving them was his aversion to the Negroes and his dislike of the Republican policy in extending the franchise to them. He was a singular man, fierce, quick-tempered, very foul-mouthed when he was angry, and of a most retiring disposition. During all the years that he lived at Horsham, I doubt if ever he set foot in the town. He had a garden and two or three fields around his house, and there he would take his exercise, though very often for weeks on end. He would never leave his room. He drank a great deal of brandy and smoked very heavily, but he would see no society and did not want any friends not even his own brother. He didn't mind me. In fact, he took a fancy to me. For at the time when he saw me first, I was a youngster of twelve or so. This would be in the year 1878, after he'd been eight or nine years in England. 
He begged my father to let me live with him, and he was very kind to me in his way. When he was sober, he used to be fond of playing backgammon and draughts with me, and he'd make me his representative both with the servants and with the tradespeople, so that by the time I was sixteen, I was quite the master of the house. I kept all the keys and could go where I liked and do what I liked, so long as I did not disturb him in his privacy. There was one singular exception. However, for he had a single room, a lumber room, up among the attics, which was invariably locked, and which he would never permit me or anyone else to enter. With the boy's curiosity, I have peeped through the keyhole, but I was never able to see more than such a collection of old trunks and bundles as would be expected in such a room. One day, it was March, 1883, a letter with a foreign stamp lay upon the table in front of the colonel's plate. It was not a common thing for him to receive letters, for his bills were all paid in ready money, and he had no friends of any sort. From India, said he, as he took it up. Potticherry postmark, what can this be? Opening it hurriedly, out there jumped five little dried orange pips, which pattered down on his plate. I began to laugh at this, but the laugh was struck from my lips at the sight of his face. His lip had fallen. His eyes were protruding, his skin the color of putty, and he glared at the envelope, which he still held in his trembling hand. Cake! K, K, he shrieked, and then, my God, my God, my sins have overtaken me. What is it, uncle? I cried. Death, said he, and rising from the table, he retired to his room, leaving me palpitating with horror. I took up the envelope and saw, scrawled in red ink upon the inner flap, just above the gum, the letter K, three times repeated. There was nothing else save the five dried pips. What could be the reason of his overpowering terror? I left the breakfast table, and as I ascended the stair, I met him coming down with an old rusty key, which must have belonged to the attic. In one hand, a small brass box, like a cash box, in the other. They may do what they like, but I'll checkmate them still, he said with an oath. Tell Mary that I shall want fire in my room today, and send down to Fordham, a Horsham lawyer. I did as ordered, and when the lawyer arrived, I was asked to step up to the room. The fire was burning brightly, and in the grate, there was a mass of black, fluffy ashes, as of burned paper, while the brass box stood open and empty beside it. As I glanced at the box, I noticed with a start that upon the lid were printed the treble K, which I had read in the morning upon the envelope. I wish you, John, said my uncle, to witness my will. I leave my estate with all its advantages and all its disadvantages 
to my brother, your father, whence it will no doubt descend to you. If you can enjoy it in peace, well and good. If you find you cannot, take my advice, my boy. Leave it to your deadliest enemy. I'm sorry to give you such a two-edged thing, but I can't say what turn things are going to take. Kindly sign the paper where Mr. Fordham shows you. I signed the paper as directed, and the lawyer took it away with him. The singular incident made, as you may think, the deepest impression upon me, and I pondered over it and turned it every which way in my mind without being able to make anything of it. Yet I couldn't shake off the vague feeling of dread which it left behind, though the sensation grew less keen as the weeks passed, and nothing happened to disturb the usual routine of our lives. I could see a change in my uncle, however. He drank more than ever, and he was less inclined for any sort of society. Most of his time he would spend in his room, with the door locked upon the inside. But sometimes he'd emerge in a sort of drunken frenzy, and would burst out of the house and tear about the garden with a revolver in his hand, screaming out that he was afraid of no man. He was not to be cooped up like a sheep in a pen by man or devil. When these hot fits were over, however, he would rush tumultuously in at the door and lock and bar it behind him, like a man who can brazen it no longer against the terror which lies at the roots of his soul. At such times I have seen his face, even on a cold day, glisten with moisture, as though it were newly raised from a basin. Well, to come to an end of the matter, Mr. Holmes, and not to abuse your patience, there came a night when he made one of those drunken sallies of which he never came back. We found him when we went to search for him, face downward in a little green-scummed pool, which lay at the foot of the garden. There was no sign of any violence, and the water was but two feet deep, so that the jury, having regard to his known eccentricity, brought in a verdict of suicide. But I, who knew how he winced from the very thought of death, had much ado to persuade myself that he had gone out of his way to meet it. The matter passed, however, and my father entered into possession of the state and of some 14,000 pounds, which lay to his credit at the bank. That's a good spot to leave it for tonight. <laughs> wow. That is the start of a story. Cool beans. <laughs> All right. There you go. That is uh, the five pips, which will be our uh, our story for the next few episodes. And we will continue on with that story on Saturday night stream. Cool beans. All right, folks, that's going to do it for tonight. Thanks so much for watching. I don't know what happened with our live feed on uh, Facebook, whether it's still there or not. We'll check later. If it's not, I'll upload the video or your best bet always is to check out rumble.com slash Sheldon or YouTube. You can find the links in our show notes tonight. Thanks to our podcast listeners too. 
And uh, that'll do it. I'll see you Saturday night, 10 o'clock Malaysian time. I'm Jay Sheldon, and this is The Jay Sheldon Show. Good night. Snort. <laughs>